kind of weird when you're doing announcements and preaching. You just kind of walk off and then walk back on. Anyway, nevertheless, there you go. We've uh, started this uh, series uh, new creation people. If you're watching us online and you're brand new or this is your first Sunday, if you're here, this is your first Sunday, allow me to do a little bit of catch up. We, we kicked off this series looking at new creation people. Kind of a churchy phrase, but it's actually extremely important as we read the scriptures because the Bible says we're new creation people. And, and sometimes we can go, okay, yeah, I, I kind of understand that, but what exactly does that mean? What does that have to do with my identity? Chris Hassel, good to see you in the cheap seats, brother. Awesome. We've got people here. We've got people in the lobby. We have people in the nursery. We have people in the multi-purpose room. Pope's got the kids out in the uh, playground, so it's, it's an exciting time. But, uh, so we started this series, and really what we're doing is we're using the book of Ephesians as our platform to help us give further guidance to what is the Bible says is our identity right? We, we live in a culture where everyone else is labeling us. Everyone else is kind of categorizing us. What does the Bible say? And, and that's really what we're trying to unpack and, and kind of get familiar with. So if you missed any of our messages, they're all online. You can catch up. Uh, you, if you have someone in your life that, uh, that this would be helpful, you can refer them to our website and they can view those uh, messages as well. So this morning we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. If you want to open your Bibles, we'll get to that in just a moment. For nearly half a century, for a lot of you, this is going to hit home very, very closely, especially for Polly. Where's Polly? There she is. Uh, for nearly a half a century, there was something called the Iron Curtain. Raise your hand if you're familiar with the Iron Curtain. Yes, even online, you can raise your hand. This Iron Curtain divided Europe into East and West, both basically physically politically, but also spiritually. Uh, it had a heavy hand in that. The militarized border uh, literally separated communist east from the, from the capitalist west, a division that was epitomized by the Iron Curtain, the Berlin Wall. Here's a, a picture of the Berlin Wall. This is after the fact. You can still go and see remnants of this horrible Wall. Spiritually, the Iron Curtain served as a seemingly impenetrable barrier, not only for people, but for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It separated atheistic, communist nation with an ever-growing influence of Christianity. So it accomplished so much more than just people, so much more than just militaries. It, it divided the gospel's message. From 1945 to 1989, this curtain separated families, friends, uh, businesses, other relationships, nations, languages, and even churches. It separated churches, resulting in resentment, distrust, and fear. That's what it was created for, and it did a really good job of doing it because all of those were accomplished. In 1989, many of us in this room remember, others of you, maybe you've read about it. Where's my students here? So, yeah, Grace. Awesome. Isn't it cool we have students in church with us? So maybe you've read about this, maybe you've heard about this, maybe you've seen pictures about this. Ronald Reagan stands before Mikhail Gorbachev, and what does he say? One more time. 
tear down this wall. This is going to matter as we unpack our passage. Tear down this wall, he stands before Gorbachev and announces this. And in 1989, many of us watched as the citizens from both east and west began to pour across and through that wall and re-embrace with family members that they had heard about but never seen. They were re-engaged with churches and businesses and a whole new world opened up because the wall of separation was torn down. And as much as the Berlin Wall was and is a monumental, not just U.S. and not just a Berlin accomplishment, a world-renowned, monumental, unforgettable, historical event, all of that true, it pales in comparison to what Jesus Christ did on the cross. It can't even come close to the freedom and the opening of opportunity that Jesus accomplished on the cross. One that had separated humanity for that point for centuries. This wall was meant to preserve God's people from moral and spiritual corruption. To protect the chosen family but it quickly became a divider that alienated people, most notably Gentiles. A horrible, horrible, horrible place that Jesus wants to do something about it. You see, the law of Moses and the sacrificial system, you can read about that in the Old Testament. It had marked God's path of holy living for the Jews, and it was wonderful for the Jews. Yet Gentiles, like many today, stood as aliens looking outside, peering into what is unattainable to them, something they can't have. Foreigners, defeated outcasts, foreigners to the covenants that the chosen people were privy to. And all of that changed when God tore down the wall. In the first part of his letter in the book of Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, we see that Paul very sharply contrasts something that's very, very important for us. He contrasts once dead in our trespasses to sin, chapter 2, verse 1, with our new lives as those made together in Christ, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. And there's this deep, deep contrast of once dead, new lives. And it's something very, very clear that the readers and the receivers of this letter in Ephesus, it was very near and dear to their hearts. They understood it. And so now Paul turns to another contrast. And now he contrasts the life and the time between the Gentile and the Jew, something we don't normally put a whole lot of thought into it. Very few of us will wake up tomorrow and think, okay, I'm a Gentile, therefore, or I'm Jewish, and therefore, we don't think that way. But in this particular instance, Paul wants to contrast these two. Because this time, he describes in vivid, vivid language the enormous gulf 
for those who are Gentiles pre-Christ and those who are in Christ along with the Jews. Stay with me. There's this bridged, finished work by Jesus. And Paul wants to explain it and make sure that they know it. And Paul, through the power of the Holy Spirit, wants to make sure that you and I know this as well. Why? It's important to our faith. It's important for us to understand, and you're going to see that at the end of the message. Because on this new level, Gentile to Jew, this new foundation of equality that Christ creates, the new temple, if you would, or, or really the church is literally being built before the eyes of the people of Ephesus. And that brings us to our passage. With all of that as our foundation, that brings us to this morning. So if you would please stand for the reading of the Word of God. Uh, it is chapter 2 in the book of Ephesians, starting with verse 11. I'm going to go through verse 13 this morning. Therefore, remember that formerly, look, as we talk about this, a little side note, look for key words in this passage because God is, is so good at what he does in writing his scriptures so that we can really, really understand it. So look for key words here, okay? Uh, verse 11 again, therefore, remember that formerly you, are who are, you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time, at that time, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away, this is one of the greatest promises, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. That is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Paul begins by describing the common predicament of the uncircumcision, the condition all Gentiles experienced prior to their conversion in Jesus Christ. This is, in other words, another way of saying, hey, let's all get on the same page here. Have you heard that phrase before? This is Paul saying, hey, let's all get on the same page because it's not about you, it's not about you, it's not about you. This is all of us are on the same page. Verses 11 and 12 describe the lives of the Gentile, uh, and, and, and quick little note here, Gentile means essentially anybody that's not Jewish, uh, and so that for many of us in this room, that's us, and so Paul describes the lives of Gentiles, those who are not in Christ, prior to the reconciling work of the cross, and, and I'll, I'll warn you, it's not pretty. Imagine as we talk about this, if I were describing you in your life in the way that Paul describes the Gentiles. Paul uses these words, separate, excluded, strangers, no hope, without God. I don't know about you, but this seems like a pretty bleak uh, description of one's existence. If I were to say, this is who you are, you have no hope, you have no home, you have no God, 
You have nothing. Have a nice life. This is the life of the Gentile. Now, we'll get to hope in our passage. You're like, wow, this is like super bummer of a passage. We're going to get to the hope, and we're going to end on a highlight, and I'll, and I'll warn you now, it's preachy. It is preachy because it's good news. But we can't fast forward to that because something is only good news if another thing. You with me? Easter Sunday is amazing because of Good Friday. As the Apostle Paul says, if, if it weren't for his death, we'd be doing this for nothing. And so for us, it's important that we don't just hurry up to the good news of this passage. Because it's important that we understand what it was like to not have a relationship with Jesus. Because that was true for them, it's, it's true for us on what your life was like without Jesus. Now, some of you became a Christian at age five in a Sunday school program, and you don't really remember life without Christ. Well, I'm going to tell you what your life was. I'm also going to let you know if you are here today or you know someone, I, with all of the humbleness and grace and love that I possibly can, this is the life of one who is without God. And it ought to, as Tanner encouraged us, prompt us to say something. First, the Gentiles in the first century had no thought of the Messiah. That was not part of their regular conversation. It was not part of their regular hope. It was just something that they knew about, but more than just know. Only the Jews hoped for a Savior. Only the Jews woke up every day thinking, there's going to be a Savior, and I cannot wait. That was special for them. It was foreshadowed first in the book of Genesis after the fall. Someone that was going to come and make all right again. The Jews knew the Messiah would come from their people. And so they looked forward to the coming of the son of David. Every generation, could this be it? Could this be it? Could this be the day? So, some of you can relate. Could this be the day that Jesus comes again? I do that when I have to do Max's online LA class. Jesus, this would be phenomenal if you came right now. And then I have to do LA with him. The Gentiles, however, some of them very well aware of their sin and be, remember several weeks ago we talked about this, very spiritual. They were aware of their pending spiritual death. That's why they were looking underneath every stone, looking for a way to have something that would save them from death. From death. But they had no claim on the coming anointed king. It wasn't for them. They were, if you would, Christless. Imagine if you, my friends, were Christless. What would life look like for you? They were also stateless. They were without a home, being excluded from the community of Israel. The Gentiles had no rights of citizenship in God's chosen nation. They were outsiders. They were outcast. They were marginalized. They couldn't step foot in the party. As the only true theocracy on earth, Israel's ultimate king was God himself. 
and they couldn't get within 10 feet. You see, God ruled his people through his covenants, his promises, his anointed kings, his rules. And unless you were part of the family, you were out. Strangers to the promises of God. The Gentiles had no hope. They were foreigners to God's nation. This is a brutal reality. One that we often don't wallow in to fully grasp what a gift it is that we're saved. In addition to this, when God established his covenant with Abraham, that patriarch of the Hebrew people, how did he refer to Abraham? As his friend. Can you remember not having a friend? You know, there, there are kids who, well, they don't now because of COVID, but they used to go to school um, in middle school and high school and not one person will talk to them. Maybe that was you as a kid. Not a friend. It's the scariest, loneliest place to be. As heirs of God's covenant promises, the descendants of Abraham also enjoyed this friendship. Because of Abraham, because of good old Uncle Abraham, I get to be God's friend. That's a privilege. And, and that's a word that's tossed around all the time in today's culture, especially. You want to talk about privilege? Be a part of the Jewish nation because of a great, 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 great grandpa Abraham, I'm in. God looks at me and calls me friend. God had a special relationship with the Jewish people. And Gentiles, strangers to this God, had no part in this relationship. They were, if you would, the kids standing off to the side, watching everyone have fun. That's the life before Christ. And if being a Gentile wasn't bad enough... Hopefully you're feeling this. They also had no hope. Have you ever, can, just raise your hand, I don't need to know when, but can you remember a time in your life where you didn't have hope for a moment? That's a scary place to be. Usually we have several options. But to be in a place, even just for a moment, where there is no hope, there are no options, and you are desperate with no hope in sight. No Savior, no home, no promises. That meant that the Gentiles had no meaningful future. Imagine if I looked at you and said, might as well hang it up now, you have no future. That could well, very well, arguably, be one of the worst things someone could say to you. Aren't you glad you're not done? Aren't you glad you can continue to learn? Aren't you glad you can continue to be refined by Christ? For the Gentile, there was no hope. Because the hope rested with the Jewish Messiah. 
They couldn't expect their situation to improve either in this life or the life to come. It was horrible. They were very much so without grace. They were very much so without hope. How do you parent? How do you grab your son or daughter and say, hang in there, tomorrow's a new day? It's rough. No Messiah, no home, no state, if you would, no friendship with God, no hope, and that's all horrible, but it gets worse. Finally, though the Gentiles honored and worshiped many gods, remember, they're trying everything. Sound familiar? Every self-help book, I'll read it. Every religion, I'll give it a shot because I'm looking for hope. I'm looking for an answer. So they worship and they honor many gods. They practice very authentic spirituality seeking these things. But none of those lifeless gods could save them from their hopeless condition of spiritual death. Many were keenly aware that the only living God of Israel could give them what they really needed, life from death. And on one hand, good news because of that realization, right? On the other hand, they were still on the outside looking in. No chance of a Messiah, no home to speak of, no friendship with God, no hope for tomorrow, no grace. Six hundred and thirteen Old Testament laws. You break one, you're done. I don't know what the statistical ability of not being able to break one. It just equals Jesus. But nevertheless, there is a number on how possible that is. I'm sure it's not very great. 613 Old Testament laws were at play. You break one, just one, and you, as a Gentile, there is no making up for that. You are guilty. You are eliminated. You are canceled. You are done. Sound familiar? The Bible is brilliant, if you didn't know that. The Bible speaks so clearly to what we are dealing with in today's times. And guess what? It did in the 60s. It did in the 20s. It did in the 1800s. It has since the day it was written. The Bible speaks to us. As, as Alex always says, it wasn't written to us, but it was written for us. My friend Grant had this great epiphany this week. I want to share it with you. Because I think it just brings Ephesians to life. You see, our culture today is on cruise control, if you would, to a grace void society, an unforgivable society, a society where there is no forgiveness, there's no mercy. There's no understanding the position of another, just where I stand. There's only judgment. There is no grace. It's very much like Ephesus. And because of that, look around. I don't know how many of you would raise your hand and say, man, our world's fun right now. 
that was just so good. It's just so fun. I mean, it's just every morning I wake up and I look and I'm like, ah, our world is awesome. I doubt any of you here today or those of you who are watching online have uttered those words anytime soon. Someone finds dirt on you from even dozens of years ago, that defines you. You're canceled. No grace, no mercy. You say the wrong thing or post the wrong thing or don't say the right thing or don't post the right thing. You're canceled. You're judged. You hang out with the wrong person. You are subject to being canceled. Today, at least in part, we see a glimpse of the world of Ephesus. But see, unlike Ephesus where it was regulated to a people group, today, in today's culture, it's everybody. How many of you have ever had confusion over the last several months of, I don't know what to say or not to say. I don't know what to post or what not to post. I don't know how aggressive to be. I don't know how passionate to be. I, I, I don't know what the rules are. Anybody in my boat? Yeah, man, it's super confusing. It seems like the rules in the game change moment by moment. And if you aren't privy to the rules and you break the rules, you're out. Kind of sounds like the Old Testament laws. No one is safe from this culture who judges and sentences on the fly, knee-jerk reactions. And it's both sides. Trust me, I'm not speaking to anybody in particular. I'm just saying this is culture. It's just not fun, quite frankly. Uh, a culture who decides who's in and who's out, this culture who defines what goes and what stays, this culture, a, a growing culture is without grace and the enemy loves it. Ah, oh, he adores it. Because very slowly, but very strongly in a crafty way, the enemy is nudging us ever closer to where we are an unreconciled culture. And not just with God himself, but with one another. And when we create an unreconciled culture, misery follows. Because not only are we unreconciled to the only one, the God of all creation, that can do something about it, but I'm unreconciled to my neighbor, and oftentimes even within the church. Never is that more noticeable than doggone election years. And what we're seeing is a graceless society. That's where we're speeding towards. And it's dangerous. And for the Gentiles, things didn't look great for them. Every morning they woke up, there weren't sunny skies. There wasn't a, a really good news coverage on. It was awful. Every day they woke up, there was bad news. And there was only one answer for the bad news, but they couldn't access it. There was only one hope, but they couldn't even get near it. 
And then Paul brings us to one of the most powerful contrasts literally ever found in the entire Bible. Two words that you should grab your Bible. I don't care if you grab one of those fat Sharpies. Circle this puppy, underline it, grab arrows pointing to it, put all different colors to it. It's these two words, but God. But God. Paul has just spent an enormous time giving the most depressing statement ever. But God, having described the Gentiles, their common trajectory before coming to Christ, Paul reveals the ultimate cure for people of all race, all background, every nation, every gender, young and old, rich and poor, married and single, those who have a great life and those who are struggling, Democrat and Republican, liberal and conservative, that your hope and your hope only is in the cross of Jesus Christ. But God, what that means is your life might be spinning out of control. You might be desperate, you might be scared, and you need to look at the enemy dead in the face and say, but God, I am struggling, I, I have mental problems, I, I, I am depressed, I am anxious, I am scared, I am, I am without work, my marriage is struggling, and I don't know what's going on with COVID. You look in the eyes of the enemy and you say, but God. Because all of that might be true. But God. You know, the enemy is so good at reminding you how bad you are. The enemy is so good at reminding you of your sin and your goof-ups and your struggles and things you shouldn't have said and things you shouldn't have done and, and thing, how you should have done it better. Should is the worst word on the planet. Don't ever use it. And I want to implore you, the next time the enemy does that to you, you pause and go, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right, but God... Because the enemy can't stand that. But God. You see, Jesus made it possible for the hopeless and the helpless of every single age, from the first century to the 21st century and beyond, everyone has the ability to approach him through faith. His death in our place. And God provided a means of reconciliation. Think about the but God's the but nows of this passage. And remember what we just covered. Remember the bad news because we're about to enter into the good news. We were once Christless, but now we are in Christ. We were once stateless. In other words, you didn't have a home, but now we are full citizens in the family. We were once friendless, but now not only do we have a friend, but we're members of the royal family. We were once hopeless, but now we are guaranteed a glorious future. Notice how things have changed. And we often don't wake up every day going, man, my life was this without you, God. It's this now. Thank you so much for that. But this is a reality, not just for those in Ephesus, but it's a reality for us today. Because we too were once godless. And not only can we approach God as creator of the universe, but we can, we can approach him as father. 
You see, when Jesus paid the penalty for the sins of all humanity, Jews and Gentiles alike, the Berlin Wall, if you would, of separation crumbled. It was torn down and it changed the world. As Paul wrote to the Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Stop categorizing people. I don't care how we categorize, stop it. We are all under the love and mercy and grace of Jesus Christ, even the person who drives you crazy sitting next to you. You see, in Paul's mind, what he's thinking about as he writes this is the dividing wall that separated Jews and Gentiles from this massive temple complex constructed by Herod in the first century. He's certainly thinking about the future theology guided by the Holy Spirit, but make no mistake about it, he's also thinking about a very tangible physical temple that doesn't have power anymore. And he knows this power very, very well. And, and essentially what Paul is saying, it's bigger than any of you. Let's pretend you are all in Ephesus. It's bigger than you guys. It's bigger than you guys. It's bigger than your marriage, bigger than your friendship. It's bigger than this church. And so Paul is driving this point home. Quick uh, history lesson uh, for some of you who may don't understand the temple, why this is such a big deal. Herod's temple had several courts allowing various levels of entry and access. Only the high priest could enter the innermost holy of holies, and this could only happen on the Day of Atonement. Outside that most holy place, the Levites, on duty for daily worship, operated in the holy place within the temple. Just outside the temple building surrounding it was the court of priests. Notice you're getting further and further away from that which is holy. And that's where the altar for burnt offerings stood. Male Jews had access to that adjacent court. Of Israel, but Jewish women were limited to the court of the women even farther. Don't shoot the messenger. Finally, the court of the Gentiles, listen to this, the court of the Gentiles was farthest away from the temple, preventing non-Jews from coming anywhere close to the temple structure itself. Further, there was a stone barrier called the wall of separation. This wall represented the great divide between Jews and Gentiles. The Gentiles, they could look at the temple from afar. You ever done that? You're driving by like Mount Rushmore or like Statue of Liberty, and like, ah, oh, we can't really go, but there it is, kids. Like, we're going to keep driving. The Gentiles, they could look, but no touching. You can look, but from afar. And with the prejudices and the strict temple laws and thick walls and harsh notices preventing non-Jews from getting anywhere close, to God's presence. 
First century Jewish historian Josephus described the wall separating the court of the Gentiles from the inner courts of the temple. Here's what he says. When you go through these first cloisters to the second court of the temple, there was a partition made of stone all around whose height was three cubits. Its construction was very elegant. Upon it stood two pillars at equal distances from one another, declaring the law of purity, some in Greek and some in Roman letters, that, quote, no foreigner should go within that sanctuary. For that second court of the temple was called the sanctuary. You couldn't even walk into the sanctuary. Separation. I want you to feel that for a moment. Warning signs saying if you're one of these, you're not welcome here. In the last century, archaeologists have discovered two stone inscriptions that stood in the temple, warning signs in Greek that once stood very prominently in the wall of separation. Every Jew and Gentile would have known this warning very, very well. And on part of the text of the stone pillar that stood in the wall of separation, dividing people, this is what it says. No foreigner may enter within the barrier and the enclosure around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. I picture a a mom like my Sandy with three boys so badly wanting hope. Watching the the family of Israel and, and so desperately wanting that. And then reading those words, no foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Anyone who's caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. So when Paul said that Christ's death broke down the dividing wall, he meant that the covenant of the law that was formed uh, for the basis for such cultural and religious distinctions, that was no longer in play. It gives new meaning to the new covenant. In Christ, to to all who confess with their mouth and they they believe in their heart that Jesus is Lord, that separation between Jew and Gentile has been rendered obsolete forever. Therefore, giving access not only to the inner court, but to God himself. Why is the gospel good news? Because quite frankly, you don't deserve access to God. 
you don't deserve forgiveness. You don't deserve grace and mercy. Not only do you not deserve a, a seat at the table, you don't deserve to be led in the house. For the Gentile, this dead life compared to the new life was on their minds regularly. They realized by no choice of their own what life handed them before Jesus. And so it ought to be for us. So it ought to be for us to wake up every day and go, man, I, I could be there. I, I could be walking without Christ. I could have no hope. I could just be trying to figure it out on my own, but I'm not. I have Christ. Because we too were once without a Messiah. Without a home, without a friendship with God, without hope, without grace. But God, but God intervened. He intervened for you, and he intervened for your neighbor, and he intervened for your coworker. He intervened with the person that you despise when you see them on TV. Whatever it is, he but God. And he tore down the wall of separation, and because of that, we have a new reality that's not of this world. And the Bible says it's foolishness to those that are just of this world. Sometimes it's foolishness to me, like doesn't make sense. But boy, I'm thankful for it. A reality that gives us hope for this life today and for the one to come. You, follower of Jesus, this is now your reality, but it's also your destiny. It's why you were saved, and it changes everything. And it forces us to take a look at this world that, again, is increasingly an unreconciled world to the Creator, but also to one another and go, what is my job? The Bible makes it abundantly clear. Your job is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and to love your neighbor. And friends, right now, we're not doing a great job loving our neighbor. holistically. But notice what has to come first. We have to love the Lord our God with all of our heart. I can't possibly go love someone that I am completely against politically, morally, ethically, culturally. I can't love them authentically if I'm not loving my God who changed my world forever. And He can change yours too. Let's pray together and allow this truth to cause us to worship. Lord, when we contrast, when we contrast the life of the Gentile, that, that person um, that was without you prior to your death and resurrection, what a morbid, um, defeating, sad existence. To not have hope. 
Father, my heart breaks for, for those people all around the world right now who have no hope. Would you use us that you have saved through Christ Jesus to bring that hope? To know what to say and what not to say. To know what to post and what not to post. To know what volume and tone to use. To know when to be quiet and when to speak up. When to defend and when to be silent before the shears. We live in a confusing world of I don't know. But we do know this. Walking with you, abiding in you, is the safest, best, most perfectly ordained place we could ever be. And so for my friends here, for those who are watching online, I pray that you would speak to their heart. And if nothing else, may this message remind us, what was life like without you? What was I destined for? And then to celebrate what we have now in worship. For we love you and praise you. Thank you for the Apostle Paul. Thank you for the book of Ephesians. Thank you for the truths, the life-changing stakes that are in the ground. May we respond accordingly. In Christ's name.